Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm really uh, thrilled to introduce my good friend and colleague, Ed Dridgian. Really delighted that uh, he's with us here today. Ed is the founding director of the James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy at Rice University. Ed and I are, are great friends from my Rice days, uh, and we share lots of uh, values, such as a commitment to rigorous scholarship, as well as relevance of that scholarship to both uh, public policymakers and to business. So this is something that Ed is very committed to, and I think you'll understand that when you hear his remarks. He and I have actually spent a lot of time together, both professionally and uh, socially. Uh, Our wives even took a trip to Italy together, but somehow, Ed, we were left out of that trip. How did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) We were working too hard, I think, so they went, went on without us. Uh, We also share something else at the moment. We're both severely jet-lagged, so we both separately came back from China within the last few days, Um, and in fact, Ed arrived yesterday and spoke to a large group last night in in San Francisco, and so he's being very generous to to come to, to Davis and spend today and tomorrow with us. Uh, despite the fatigue, that is very understandable. So, Ed, thank you for your uh, willingness to do that. <clears throat> so, um, let me tell you a little bit about Ed's really fascinating career. He's an internationally visible leader in di- diplomacy and the global energy industry. He's one of the United States' most decorated diplomats, whose career has spanned the administrations of eight U.S. presidents. He's a leading expert on complex political security, economic, religious, and ethnic issues of the Middle East. He's played key roles in the Arab-Israeli peace process, the U.S.-led coalition against Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, successful efforts to end the civil war in Lebanon, the release of U.S. hostages in Lebanon, and the establishment of collective and bilateral security arrangements in the Persian Gulf. He is the author of the book entitled Danger and Opportunity, An American Ambassador's Journey Through the Middle East, which was published in 2008 by Simon & Schuster. I have a copy. I can highly recommend it. It's really a fascinating read. And, Ed, if I remember correctly, the danger and opportunity comes from the uh, Chinese characters for the word crisis. Is that correct? Right. So very interesting book. I'd urge you to to have a look at it uh, if you can. Uh, Prior to his nomination by President Bill Clinton as U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Ed served both President George Herbert Walker Bush and President Clinton as Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs and and President Ronald Reagan and President Bush as U.S. Ambassador to the Syrian Arab Republic. Ed has also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Near Eastern and South Asian Affairs, as Deputy Chief of the U.S. Mission to the Kingdom of Jordan, and as Special Assistant to President Reagan and Deputy Press Secretary for Foreign Affairs in the White House. Ed joined the Foreign Service in 1962, and his assignments have included uh, being political officer in Beirut, Lebanon, Casablanca, Morocco, and was also Consul General in Bordeaux, France. And, Ed, if my memory serves me, uh, you met uh, your French wife, Francoise, in Morocco. Is that right? Very exotic. Sounds very exotic to meet a wife in Morocco, doesn't it? 
He headed the political section in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow during the critical period in the U.S.-Soviet relations marked by the invasion of Afghanistan. He served in the United States Army uh, as a first lieutenant in the Republic of Korea following his graduation from the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He speaks Arabic, Russian, French, and Armenian and English. He's been awarded the Presidential Distinguished Service Award, the Department of State's Distinguished Honor Award, the President's Meritorious Service Award, the Anti-Defamation League's Moral Statesman Award, and the Ellis Island Medal of Honor. He was asked by Secretary of State Colin Powell to chair a congressionally mandated bipartisan advisory group on public diplomacy in the Arab and Muslim world. Uh, In 2006, Ed served as senior advisor to the Iraq Study Group, a bipartisan panel mandated by the Congress to assess the current and prospective situation in Iraq. Ed is also on the boards of directors of Occidental Petroleum and Baker Hughes, which is an oil field services company, both large, uh, globally visible energy companies. So in addition to his amazing uh, diplomatic career, he's also heavily involved in the global energy uh, industry. So please join me in welcoming Ambassador Edward Gerigian. Ed, welcome. Thank you very much, Steve, uh, for that extremely generous introduction. Uh, all it shows is that I've lived a long life. You know, in the Middle East, there's a uh, joke that uh, I'm so old that I can remember the Dead Sea when it was only sick. <laughs> I'm glad to be here at UC Davis, uh, to be here under the aegis of the Graduate School of Management and the Institute for Governmental Affairs. I'm glad that I'm not in Washington. You know, Washington is a place where there are so many people lost in thought because it's such unfamiliar territory. And uh, where people say, I'll double cross that bridge when I get to it. And where the definition of a friend is someone who stabs you in the chest. So it's good to be in friendly territory. Having lived in the Washington bureaucracy uh, for years, uh, there's a lot of truth to those jokes. What I... Uh, Steve uh, really overly generously went through this uh, CV. But you know, our children always tell us the truth. And uh, our daughter, when she graduated from Yale in 2005, one of these rare father-daughter discussions, she said, Dad, how long have you been this so-called great Middle East expert? Oh, I said, sweetheart, over 32 years. And she looked at me very pensively and said, you know, Dad, you haven't done a very good job. (laughs) So... um, I don't know if you want to listen to me after that. But in any case, what I'm going to try to do uh, today is give you a very broad uh, geopolitical survey of the challenges uh, in the Middle East, especially the challenges that the United States faces, uh, and to try to get to some of the core issues uh, beyond the headlines uh, to try to enhanced understanding of what we're facing in this very vital region of the world. And my definition of the uh, broader Middle East, let me see if I can work this, is, uh, okay, that's a little difficult. But anyway, you could see it from here, from the Maghreb, uh, where you see Algeria, all the way to uh, India, uh, and uh, the, of course, the 
cauldron, what I called it, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, of course, the Gulf. Is there a laser? Good. No. Oh, great. Just, oh, that's much better. Thank you. <clears throat> so basically, it's this whole broader Middle East uh, that, that scans from northern Africa through the uh, Arab world, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. You have to realize that India is one of the largest Muslim-populated countries in the world. There are 140 million Muslims who live in India. And, of course, beyond the largest uh, Muslim-populated country in the world is Indonesia. They have over 200-odd million uh, people, Muslims, in in Indonesia. So you can see that the so-called Muslim world is truly vast in its extent and its breadth. And you can imagine all the geopolitical interests that are housed in this very important and vital uh, part of the uh, world. The Throughout the Muslim world, there is a very seminal struggle of ideas that is taking place. It's been taking place for years. And it's really the struggle for the, <clears throat> the hearts and minds of the Muslim people. And of course, I'm generalizing because each region and each country has its specificity. But we as Americans are, are really challenged to understand the culture of the countries in the Muslim world And this struggle is really the struggle between the forces of moderation and the forces of extremism. This is their struggle. It is not our struggle. It is their struggle to determine who may be victors or losers or what compromises are made. But this overarching struggle for ideas influences almost everything I'm going to talk about uh, in my remarks. And I think one of the important things that United States administrations must realize, be they Democratic or Republican, is that, again, this is their struggle. We can influence that struggle, but we cannot dominate that struggle or try to be the catalytic force that is going to determine which way it's going to go. It's for the Muslims to determine in each country, in each region of the Muslim world, their future. But what we do and don't do can have an impact. And I think the basic goal, if I could summarize, and um, generalizations are always faulty, is to really, U.S. policy policy should be directed toward doing everything possible to enhance and reinforce the role of the moderates in the Muslim world and marginalize the extremists. So having said that, what I'm going to talk about is uh, beyond what I've just said, the importance of U.S. policy going from conflict management, putting out the fires that too frequently and intermittently erupt in the Middle East, throughout the Middle East, in the Arab-Israeli context, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Kashmir, uh, even a remote conflict like the Western Sahara that nobody hears about between uh, Morocco and Algeria and uh, the Polisario movement there, That's a remote issue that one day may blow up in our faces because it's not uh, being addressed uh, properly. But we must go from conflict management to conflict resolution. In other words, the the basic thrust of American policy should be to doing whatever it can to resolve the critical crises in this part of the world. At the foremost of that is the Arab-Israeli 
conflict. I will talk about the ongoing conflict in Iran and the hopeful endgame in Iraq, rather, and then, of course, the dynamics of Iran and the threat that Iran poses, and, of course, then the what I call the cauldron, uh, Afghanistan-Pakistan, uh, and then, of course, the relationship of the Afghan uh, struggle, problem, and conflict to India and Pakistani-Indian relations, the issue of Kashmir, uh, as some of the major uh, conflict areas that are really calling for conflict resolution. If these issues are not addressed in a timely and serious manner, they will erupt and they will hijack the timing of any American administration's agenda. American presidents have been constantly surprised by the eruption of conflict in the Middle East and the need for the United States to participate in its uh, resolution. And remember, our interests in this part of the world are not only based on oil and gas and energy, which is really a very important interest, and I'm not uh, diminishing it, but the Persian Gulf area, the GCC states, Iran, Iraq, where the world's, the world's largest oil and gas reserves, obviously are a strategic interest, not only for us, but for the whole world in an energy-starved uh, uh, environment. And with the rise of China, with the rise of India, the demands for this oil and gas in the Persian Gulf, Central Asia, are just going to increase. And we're not going to have, unless there's a miracle tomorrow that no one, there's some Einstein out there who's going to discover that emerging technology that's going to trump everything, which I doubt is going to happen in the near future, but it will happen. But for the next couple or three decades, we are going to be dependent on hydrocarbon resources. And 20% of those hydrocarbon resources pass through the Straits of Hormuz. So just look at the delicate geopolitical risks that that poses. This narrow strait that could be blocked, even if it's blocked for a short period of time, the price of oil would go through the roof. If there's conflict in this part of the world and it restricts energy outflows, then the price of oil and gas will go through the roof, and at a time of a very fragile global recovery from the Great Recession, uh, it could be, have devastating impacts on the economic uh, front alone. Also, we have very important relationships with countries like Turkey, with Saudi Arabia, with Egypt, a very strong relationship with Israel. We have an evolving relationship, as usual, with Syria, which plays a big role. We've committed blood and treasure in Iraq. We're committing blood and treasure in Afghanistan. We have a very contentious relationship with a nuclear-aspiring Iran, nuclear weapons-aspiring Iran. And, of course, Pakistan, a nuclear-armed state, along with India, these two countries have fought three wars. And it is not irrational to think that if they went to war again, it could slide into, God forbid, a nuclear exchange. Perhaps the first nuclear exchange, you know, since the threat of the nuclear exchange in 1963 in the Cuban Missile Crisis. These are not just theoretical contingencies. These are real contingencies that have to be thought of. 
So you can see how important this part of the world is. Yet it is in a very fragile and a very delicate state. And since this is the business school, and Steve told me I have to talk about economics, <laughs> let me give you an assessment, uh, be discreet here, from a very prominent Arab leader. So I don't want you to feel that this is my assessment, the assessment of an American outsider about the region. More than half of the 300 million residents of the Middle East are people under 25 years of age. The region has the fastest growing labor force in the world. With an already high unemployment rate of 15%, the Middle East must create 80 million new jobs in the next five years just to keep a pace with demographic growth. Unemployment is a problem afflicting all 22 members of the Arab League alone, the Arab countries, but it is most conspicuously a youth issue. 50% of the jobless are under the age of 25, roughly double the world average. Women have an especially difficult time finding jobs. The Arab world's track record on education, particularly girls' education, is discouraging. 65 million adult Arabs are illiterate, and two-thirds of them are women. More than 10 million Arab children between the ages of 6 and 15 are still not enrolled in any schooling. And on current trends, this number will increase by 40% over the next decade. Arabs have the primary responsibility to create a better investment climate and stronger policies concerning education and economics. This will require greater transparency in governance, a stronger rule of law, and more independent institutions of justice. There are three very important reports that came out written by the Arabs themselves. I'm sure many of you are familiar with them. The United Nations Development Program reports, the UNDP reports, which underline the education deficit in the, in the Middle East, the political deficit, the lack of uh, representative political institutions and democracy, the human rights deficit, and the economic deficit, the issue of the economies and jobs. The total expenditure on conflicts in the Middle East in the last six decades has exceeded $3 trillion. In fact, the Middle East is the world's most militarized region in the world. And how much is spent on education? The per capita expenditure of the region's 22 nations has shrunk in the last 15 years to 10% from 20% of what the world's 30th 30 wealthiest countries spent. And I focus on education because education is the key. With the young demographic in this part of the world, education is the catalyst for the growth of these economies in a sustainable manner. And good things are being done. Uh, traditionally, we have the American University of Beirut in Lebanon, the American University of Cairo in Egypt, in Qatar. Uh, we have Education City under the aegis of Sheikh Moza, which is a very ambitious program where major Western, especially United States uh, uh, universities, 
have actually branches there, and they're granting degrees that are equivalent to the degrees granted in, in the United States. The UAE is building its, a university uh, complex. Saudi Arabia, King Abdullah, uh, north of Jeddah, is building Saudi Arabia uh, Science and Technology University. Uh, things are being done. But fundamentally, the education system is still seriously flawed, especially K through 12. Sounds familiar. We have that problem in the United States. We shouldn't be too arrogant. But also, in the Arab world, it is a critical uh, uh, failing that has to be remedied. Now, the GCC alone, the GCC states alone, uh, they represent a trillion dollar economy and it's growing. And it houses now some of the most important sovereign wealth funds. To say nothing of the new national oil companies that are now prominent in the energy sector. In the old days, it was the Seven Sisters, ExxonMobil, Shell. Now the big players are the national oil companies in this part of the world, be it Qatar, natural gas, the UAE, Iran, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, etc. And they have a large share of the market. So you can see the the stakes are truly high. And you know, oil is both a blessing and a curse. The richness of the oil reserves of these countries have allowed them to pursue policies that if they didn't have this resource, they would not have pursued in terms of the militarization, arms sales, uh, arms purchases, and really distorting the uh, good use, the public use of funds from education, uh, social purposes to really areas of national security in order to maintain their own grip on power and for their own national uh, security interests as they see them. Um, two of our fellows at the Baker Institute, Mahmoud El-Gamal and uh, Amy Jaffe, they wrote an article in Foreign Policy, Subpriming the Pump. Let me just briefly refer to a couple of passages. For years, oil wealth was mostly a danger to those paradoxically who possessed it. Resource-rich Middle Eastern countries and their labor-exporting neighbors failed for decades to invest adequately in their people or to diversify their economies. A massive influx of oil receipts and worker remittances discouraged investment in sectors conducive to steady long-term growth, fostered corruption and patronage inflated regional real estate and stock markets. We saw what happened in Dubai. You talk about a housing bubble. And provided irresistible incentives for governments to spend with wasteful, short-sighted abandon. But today's Middle East resource curse is spilling over into the international financial system. Unanticipated petrodollar flows are fueling financial bubbles, financing a Middle East arms race, and damaging the global economy through speculative oil price feedback loops. Sudden surges in oil revenue flows to and from the Middle East, known as petrodollar recycling, have certainly been a problem before, but in the last few years, they have become critically destabilizing. Today's Great Recession has generally been understood as a story about real estate excesses and regulatory shortcomings, but it's also a cautionary tale 
about the increasingly pernicious role that oil is playing in the global economy. I recommend this uh, article to you because it does point out the role of uh, uh, petro, the petrodollars in the world economy. So that is, in a broad stroke, the fundamental cultural framework when I talked about the struggle of ideas in the Muslim world and talking about the socioeconomic problems of education and the economies of this part of the world. And what I'm saying about the Arab world uh, in, in many different ways is, it can be replicated in the other parts of the, uh, the region. Uh, some countries are obviously doing much better than others. It's a very differentiated tale, but the fundamental problem is, is there. So I talked about the need to go from conflict management to conflict resolution. And you've got to read my book, <laughs> because it, it's all in there. Uh, let I began to outline what I'm going to talk about in the limited time we have is the Arab-Israeli conflict. I'm going to talk about Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan as the major uh, conflict uh, regions. Uh, uh, and what I would like to do is sort of connect the dots. I think it's very important for American administrations to connect the dots. If we continue to approach the complexity of the Middle East, crisis by crisis, country by country, always in a reactive mode, it is not going to be really promoting and enhancing the national security interests of our country, because those will result in deficient policies. So it's very important to connect the dots. I'm not an advocate of linkage, but I am an advocate of not addressing each issue as if it's an isolated issue. The core political issue in the whole Middle East is the Arab-Israeli conflict and especially the issue of Palestine. That remains the core political issue. The Palestinian issue alone is capable of bringing people out in the streets from Indonesia throughout this whole region. It is an issue that the Islamic radicals, Osama bin Laden, Zawahiri, uh, other uh, extremist groups, dictators such as Saddam Hussein, the Iranian leadership, they all exploit the Palestinian issue for their own political ends because it appeals to the street because it is a real issue, and it transcends boundaries. That is why I was so troubled when, during George W. Bush's administration, the neocons said, no, the Arab-Israeli conflict is not the central conflict that we in Washington should be preoccupied with. The real conflict in the Middle East is the lack of democracy, and we must adopt a policy of regime change and get rid of the dictators and promote democracy in the Middle East so that Israel will then be able to negotiate peace with democratic neighbors. Nonsense. Nonsense. When I was ambassador to Israel, Yitzhak Rabin was prime minister, and I had a close relationship with him, and he's a man I admire. Here is a man who fought all the wars of Israel and in the latter part of his life became a true statesman trying to obtain Israel's peace with Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and with the Palestinians especially. And of course, he did negotiate directly 
with King Hussein, and they bilaterally agreed after we constructed the Madrid Peace Conference to peace with Jordan. But the unfinished work of peace is with Palestine, with Syria, and with Lebanon. And Yitzhak Rabin told me privately, and he stated it later publicly, he said, Ed, if, if Israel had to wait for our Arab neighbors to be democratic for us to negotiate peace, we will be waiting for 1,000 years. That's an Israeli source. But the neocons in Washington had another ideological worldview. They distorted American policy by their lack of understanding of the culture of the region that they were the authors of the policy for. So we went into Iraq. I don't think that was a war of necessity. I think that was a war of choice. We found out that there were no weapons of mass destruction, which was the causes belly of that war. There were no weapons of mass destruction. But the people making policy in Washington, and I don't say this in any partisan way. I have served, as Steve said, I've served every president from John F. Kennedy to Bill Clinton. I served the president of the United States loyally despite political coloration. I'm speaking as an American foreign policy professional. That was a war of choice. If you remember in 2003, that was only two years after 9-11, the United States was truly preeminent in the support it had internationally after 9-11. George W. Bush made the right decision to launch a war in Afghanistan to displace the Taliban who were giving al-Qaeda a safe haven. That was the right war at the right time. And he succeeded, and his administration succeeded very well in that. But then the ideology of regime change, sponsored by the neocons, convinced him to go into Iraq. What we could have done in Iraq, what we could have done in Iraq, when we had the whole international community with us, could replicate what we did with Libya, another rogue state, with Muammar Gaddafi, a very problematic leader. We led an international coalition, a multinational effort of sanctions on this country that were truly universal. Unilateral sanctions simply don't work, but multilateral sanctions have a real bite to them. And Gaddafi, being sobered by our overthrow of the Taliban, the international sanctions regime, changed his whole policy. He was one of the preeminent Arab leaders who was sponsoring terrorism, Pan Am 104, who was building weapons of mass destruction, chemical and biological, was supporting uh, militant movements throughout the region, et cetera, et cetera. He changed course. And now we have bilateral relations with, Mr., with Colonel Gaddafi and the regime. American companies and energy companies are doing business in Libya. He changed course. I truly believe we could, at that moment in history, done the same thing with Saddam Hussein. In fact, there were negotiations going on. Up to the last minute, of where Saddam Hussein could be exiled before we went in militarily. We at the Baker Institute at the time wrote a report 
in collaboration with the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. I was the co-chair to a former ambassador colleague of mine, Frank Wisner, was the other co-chair. Very brief pamphlet, very concise, and it's called Post-Conflict uh, Resolution in Iraq. And we published it in January of 2003. We went to war in March of 2003. And we said that if we do go to war in Iraq, it is very important that we do the following. Go into Iraq with overwhelming force because we are going to be overthrowing a dictatorship and law and order is imposed from the top down. If we don't have enough troops on the ground, there will be violence and there will be public disorder. That was a Colin Powell doctrine of overwhelming force. The administration ignored that recommendation. It wasn't only coming from us, it was coming from other individuals within the administration and outside. And they've brilliantly conducted the war in Iraq to overthrow the regime, but then decided that the very efficient strike capabilities of the U.S. military that won the war, the invasion, could be replicated in the liberation i.e. the occupation of Iraq. It didn't happen that way. You saw the film clips of the looting of everything from the Iraqi museum on, the violence in the streets, and then the rise of the insurgencies, etc. We simply didn't have enough to... Another recommendation we made is do not dismantle the Iraqi military, the National Army. It is an institution. Don't send those soldiers home with their guns and the keys to the arms depots. They dismantled. One of the first orders that Jerry Berman made was to dismantle the Iraqi armed forces. He said, get rid of the goons at the top, the top generals with blood on their hand, close to Saddam Hussein. They're war criminals. That's fine. But keep the institution together because this you will need for maintaining public law and order. We dismantled the Iraqi. The other thing, being an ambassador to a country that had a Ba'ath Socialist Party, Syria, just like Iraq had a Ba'ath Socialist Party, we said the Ba'ath Party has, again, its thugs at the top, get rid of them, but maintain, don't dismantle, disband the Ba'ath Party. These are your technocrats. These are your civil servants. These are the people who are going to keep the electricity going, the sanitation system going. It's like our Tammany Hall in the old days. You join the, the party and you get political positions. Not a, the the 1.2 million in Syria in the Ba'ath Party. These are not all ideological criminals. You know. We dismantled the Ba'ath Party. And then Colin Powell asked me, Secretary of State at the time, because I informed him we were doing this report, he asked me if we could do, because the Baker Institute has a very robust energy policy program, if we could do an addendum to our report on the implications of, Israel, of Iran, Iraq's oil sector on the reconstruction costs of Iraq. And we came out and we did an analysis which stands the test of time that given the deterioration in the oil infrastructure of Iraq under Saddam Hussein, under years of a sanctions regime, that they simply could not produce oil enough to pay for the reconstruction costs. At the same time, when Paul Wolfowitz, the deputy secretary of defense was stating publicly that the American taxpayer is not going to foot this bill because Iraq oil will pay the bill. That is simply wrong. Was wrong and is wrong. The American taxpayer is paying the bill. 
And Iraq's oil sector is now only coming into its own after all these years. And we have multinational companies, including American companies, now are be, being bidding for Iraq's vast oil uh, and some gas reserves. So I give that to you as an illustration where I think where we go wrong is when we don't understand the culture, and I'm talking about culture with a capital K. Culture means the mindset, the culture, the traditions, the political realities, the economic realities on the ground in the country. If we go in with a faulty assessment, our policy is going to be faulty. So, I got a bit diverted on Iraq, but I will now get into <laughs> the core issue that I talked about, uh, the Arab-Israeli. And don't worry, I'm not going to give you a big history lesson. It's going to be a very short slide presentation. But a lot of times people say, Arab-Israeli conflict. Whose land does this belong to? Well, you know, you could go back, and this is a biblical map, <laughs> And is the kingdom of Israel, here are the Philistines, call them the modern-day Palestinians. And here are all the kingdoms of the ancient biblical times. They were constantly fighting each other then. Not, nothing, you know, there's a French saying, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The more things change, the more things remain the same. Well, they're still fighting each other. But in terms of who has the right to the land, you can go back to biblical times and everyone can claim a right on biblical historical terms. But then, when the Prophet Muhammad uh, began to expand Islam from uh, Mecca and Medina, and you have in the 7th century the great expansion of the uh, Muslim, the Islamic empire, uh, you could see how extensive uh, it, it was all the way to Iberia at the time, present-day Spain and Portugal, uh, under the Umayyad uh, dynasty, and then you could see its expanse, but what I want you to focus on is that this part of the world in the seventh century was known as Syria. There was no Israel, there was no Palestine at the time. Moving forward, in the Ottoman Empire, one of the great empires, of course, this area under the Ottomans was known as Syria, and you had Palestine. And then, there's a very interesting photograph. You recognize this photograph? This is the Treaty of Versailles, 1918. Here are the key players, Woodrow Wilson, with the Wilsonian ideals, which is so dear to Americans, of promoting democracy and self-determination. But Woodrow Wilson, and I admire his, his political intent and his principles, which are really core principles of American foreign policy, was trumped by the tiger, Le Tigre, Georges Clemenceau, the Prime Minister of France, Orlando, the Prime Minister of Italy, and Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of Great Britain. Trumped because between 1916 and 1918, especially the British and the France with the Italians, drew the lines in the sand in the Middle East and divided the Middle East according to their own colonial interests. And if you want to understand, if there's one impression I can leave with you today, that this is the only one thing you take away from my, my, my presentation, you can trace almost every conflict that we're facing today 
to the decisions that were made by the British, the French, and the Italians in 1916-22, the Sykes-Picot Treaty. What did they do, these gentlemen? Well, they created the French saw as their missionary purpose to create a larger Christian Lebanon, so they created Greater Lebanon and carved it out of Syria. The tensions that we see between Syria and Lebanon culturally go back to that period. I don't have it on the map here, but Kuwait and the Trucial States were created by the British. Kuwait was always considered by the Iraqis as the 19th province of Iraq. But it was created by the British. And when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, as an Arab nationalist Iraqi leader, he considered he was getting back historic territory of Iraq. Again, you go back to the Sykes-Picot Treaty. Uh, Jordan was created out of whole cloth and given to the Emir Abdullah, the Hashemites, who were kicked out by the Saudis in the Hejaz, and was given to, it was, it was a state created artificially by the British and given to the Emir Abdullah to compensate for their collaboration with the British uh, in defeating the uh, Turks in uh, World War I. And then the, politician, uh, the Palestinian uh, entity, what they did was that they gave Palestine, uh, they, they created a Palestinian uh, under British aegis, which the British gave up in 1947 and really just ran away from the problem. But the UN partition plan of 1947 is one of the most ridiculous carved out maps you can see. Look at the Arab state. And look at the Jewish state. A Jewish state here with no connection. Going down to there, this little thin line to Beersheba. And an Arab state here with no connection. I mean, they drew lines in the sand and created the background for all the conflicts, the most of the conflicts we're seeing today. And then beyond, in Central Asia, in Afghanistan and Pakistan, where again, we have committed blood and treasure of the United States, the British carved out the Durand line. Very important line. But in doing so, what they did is they separated the great Pashtun tribal nation between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And today, the dynamics of all what you're reading about is a dialogue with the Taliban and the Pakistani Taliban and the Afghan Taliban and the good Taliban and the bad Taliban is another result of the decisions made by the British in dividing this part of the world according to their imperial designs. So I think it's important to, to understand that background and going beyond the headlines when you see the problems we're facing today. Now, we've just completed a report at the Baker Institute, uh, a two-year study that I chaired with an Israeli delegation and uh, a, a Palestinian delegation, very high-level people, no one actually in government at the time, but people 
on the national security side, such as former chiefs of staff of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, to the head of Palestinian National Security Council, uh, scholars, academics, experts, demography, people, etc. On the territorial component of an Israeli-Palestinian peace settlement is exactly what George Mitchell, uh, President Obama's uh, uh, Middle East envoy, is pursuing in these uh, talks that are going away. Seeing if we can make progress on the territorial component of an Israeli-Palestinian settlement, which would help facilitate addressing the other core issues of Jerusalem, the Palestinian right of return and refugees, and uh, security issues and water issues. I think it's the right approach. Uh, So we decided to do uh, what is called track two diplomacy, an academic exercise by an academic institution, but we replicated what governments would do. Uh, I played the role of the United States mediator. The Israelis and the Palestinians played the role of their government representatives throughout this exercise. And we went into the hard work of determining whether or not a... a, uh, a hard compromise could be reached on the extremely sensitive issues of Israeli settlements, territorial swaps, the contiguity of a Palestinian state, et cetera, et cetera. And it was tough. I remember the first session we had at the Baker Institute. It got so heated at one point that the Israeli delegation started shouting at the Palestinian delegation, and the Palestinian delegation started shouting and cursing at the Israeli delegation. And I was the only one who noticed that the Israelis were cursing in Arabic and the Palestinians were cursing in Hebrew. (laughs) And it was amazing. In a heated battle, I banged on the table. I said, there's hope. And they looked at me as if I lost their mind. There's hope. We're we're, we're killing each other here. Where's their hope? I said, you're talking in each other's language. And they all laughed. The bubble burst, so we got down to work. (laughs) Two years later, we produced our report. And I commend the report to you. It's on our website, www.bakerinstitute.org. Uh, I presented this report to George Mitchell and the Obama administration, the White House on down. I went to Ramallah, presented it to Abu Mazen, the president of the Palestinian Authority. I gave it to Bibi Netanyahu's top national security people. That report is there. George Mitchell has found it uh, very useful. Uh, that report, what does it show? We started the report, and the Israelis came to the table saying that we cannot give up more than 7.3% of the settlements in, of the land in the West Bank. We have to maintain these Israeli settlement blocks. You notice how invasive these blocks are. The Palestinians said we can never accept having a Swiss cheese state with uh, that type of Israeli extension into the territory. That was the Israelis' opening position. The Palestinian position was 1.9%, not more than that. And you can see that the settlement blocks are much closer to the border and less intrusive into the main part of uh, the uh, West Bank. We also discussed territorial swaps. In other words, for the land that the Palestinians would be giving up to accommodate some of the major Israeli settlements, the Israelis would give up territory in Israel, and these would become industrial commercial zones, but would be part of the state of Palestine. I'm going through this very quickly because we don't have much time. 
We agreed on common criteria for Palestinian land. This is very important, because to get to this point where we, I could get the Israelis and the Palestinians to agree on common criteria was not easy. But we got them to agree on common criteria, which allowed us to move forward. The list of subjects that were more relevant to each side, the Palestinians were very concerned about the presence of violent settlers, the size of the settlement, Jerusalem, the Israelis, how are we going to relocate these settlers peacefully, uh, the, the security fence is a reference. So I came up at the end with three options, 4.0, 3.4, which I think is probably the more realistic one, and 4.4. They all screamed about this. I mean, they came to me after, the Israelis came to me and said, Ed, we can't, we simply, we're the doves in Israel. Uh, we, we, can't, we can't do this. We'll be, we'll be killed if we agree to anything like this. And the Palestinians came to me with the same complaints. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, uh, the bottom line of this report is that with strong political will on the part of a U.S. president and his administration, and with strong political will, obviously, on the part of the Israeli leadership and the Palestinian leadership and the support of the Arab world and the international community, a compromise can be reached somewhere between 3.4% and 4-point-something percent that can accommodate the vital interests of both sides. But it's going to be extremely difficult. And we, as an academic exercise, if we could have done that, I said, you can imagine with the power and the influence of the American government what can be done. It's going to be extremely difficult, and that's one thing that we, we listed 11 contested areas in this report. But the thought I want to leave you with, and of course this is Jerusalem, which is this is going to have to be under international aegis, the holy uh, basin uh, with uh, the Muslim quarter, the Christian quarter, the, the, uh, the Jewish quarter. Uh, but uh, arrangements can be made of, on Jerusalem. The end game, the Jewish neighborhoods in the Jewish part of Jerusalem will become the capital of Israel, and the Arab neighborhoods in East Jerusalem would become the capital of Palestine. And there would be international and free access for every religion to the holy quarters, the holy city. Uh, but you could see one of the major problems on Jerusalem, as we saw, was that some of the major settlement blocks are deliberately all around Jerusalem. And this is going to be the key compromises that are going to have to be made on these settlement blocks around Jerusalem in any final agreement. So... The lesson of this report, as I told Senator Mitchell and uh, our interlocutors, Palestine and Israel, is that it is possible with a great deal of incredibly hard work and crises all the way down the line, it is possible to reach a territorial uh, settlement. Let me talk on Iran. What's happening in Iran is so dynamic and yet so complex, but it is one of the obviously headline issues uh, in the uh, foreign policy field. It goes beyond Iran's nuclear aspirations. I personally believe that Iran, basically the regime, wants to develop a nuclear weapons capability. I, I simply don't believe that they will be satisfied with a civilian nuclear capability at the end of the day.
but there are options that Iran has. And I think this whole period where we're putting on sanctions and offering dialogue, which I support. I support President Obama's policy of engaging your adversaries. I'm a great advocate of, a strong advocate of that. I think the whole task of diplomacy is to engage your adversaries. You don't have to make peace necessarily with your friends. You have to make peace with your enemies. You have to resolve conflicts with your enemies. So it's an absurdity that we do not have an American ambassador in Damascus today. Having diplomatic representation in the capital is not a political concession, as some people, especially in Congress, feel. When I was ambassador to Syria, when I got there in 1988, our relationship was very troubled and adversarial. But under a strong president, Bush 41, strong Secretary of State, James A. Baker III, we engaged the Syrian regime. We helped end the civil war in Lebanon through the influence of, of Syria. We began to get U.S. hostages out of Beirut. I received three as ambassador during my time because we very productively cooperated with the Syrians who had the contacts with the Iranians, who had the contacts with the bad guys who had taken the hostages in Beirut. And we began to get our people out. We did Desert Storm. We got Syria on board Desert Storm. The first time Syria joined a U.S.-led political coalition and then joined militarily. I personally negotiated the freedom of travel of Syrian Jews from Syria. And the plum was getting the then-president, Hafez al-Assad, to agree to face-to-face -face direct negotiations with Israel, which allowed President Bush and Secretary Baker to go to Yitzhak Shamir, a hardline Likud leader in Israel, and agreed to come to the table, which became the Madrid Peace Conference, which is a tremendous achievement, because Israel had been asking for 40 years for direct negotiations with its Arab neighbors. We did it. And one of the results of that was what I explained was the Israeli-Jordanian Peace Treaty that was negotiated bilaterally and directly between the two. The great unfinished work is Palestine, Syria, and Lebanon. So a dialogue with your adversaries, including Iran, I think is very, very important. How this is going to play out in Iran, we simply don't know. The complexity of the internal situation in Iran with the Ayatollahs ruling, the regime ruling with Ahmadinejad as president, the crucible of power in Iran is the, of course, the Ayatollah Khomeini, who is the ultimate decision maker, but the crucible, the power faction is, if you're just a pyramid, is the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the military, which is not only a military organization, it is a financial economic organization. They have a major stake in almost every major enterprise and industry and trade in Iran. In many ways, it's the corruption of power with money. That's one of the parts of the triangle. The other is the clergy. And the other is the basij, the, uh, the militia. And juxtaposed is the green movement. And their quest is not, they're, they're not asking for regime change because several of them are clerics and President Hatami and 
uh, one of the most leading Iranian ayatollahs with great status as a uh, Islamic scholar was uh, Montezeri, the Ayatollah Montezeri, who recently died. He actually mentored Khomeini. He turned against the regime. He associated himself with the Green Movement, which was vast in its, if you will, theological religious implications. At one point, he called the current regime un-Islamic. Coming from Montezeri, that was a very serious accusation. So you have these dynamics of a young, popular movement supported by some elite members of Iranian society who are asking for free elections, real elections, who are asking for release of political prisoners, for human rights. And how that's going to play out is simply unknown. Right now, the power elite has trumped the green movement. But there's been a slight tectonic shift in Iranian society. And this isn't over yet. So the challenge for American diplomacy and foreign policy is how to encourage the green movement without tainting them with American support, which would be the kiss of death. At the same time, trying to engage with the leadership of Iran on the nuclear issue and a dialogue on broader issues. It's quite a challenge. I think that military action against Iran would have incredible consequences, very destabilizing for the region as a whole. I don't know if I could put this back on. Let me get back to the big map. Because if there was a military attack on Iran, uh, first of all, I don't think any military attack could destroy Iran's actual and potential nuclear weapons programs or nuclear program. It will really set it back for maybe several years, but it won't destroy it. And you cannot destroy what's in people's minds, the nuclear scientists, the technocrats. They've got the knowledge. So you have to balance out the positive aspects of a military attack in in delaying and deferring an Iranian nuclear capability against the possible consequences of that. There's no question in my mind if there was a military attack on Iran that it would be extremely and immediately destabilizing in a whole gulf here. The Iranians have influence to block the Straits of Hormuz, even temporarily. We have the fifth fleet. We have the firepower in the Persian Gulf. We've been in, we've been in the uh, Persian Gulf since 1949 with a very powerful fleet. The fifth fleet is headquartered in Bahrain. So it's not that the Iranians can prevail militarily, but they can do enough damage that will temporarily block the free flow of oil to world markets and immediately set the price of oil and have immediate impact on the world economy. That's one thing. They could pressure any country that they see as colluding with whoever attacked them. They have influence in Iraq because of our invasion there. Iraq was the barrier to Iranian influence because of the 
hatred of the two regimes between Saddam Hussein and the Iranian regime, but they have assets in Iraq and we have soldiers in Iraq. They could cause trouble in Afghanistan. We have soldiers in Afghanistan. They can asymmetrically encourage uh, uh, Hezbollah and Hamas to really turn on the heat against Israel. It could get very, very messy. So people should think three times before they talk about military action against Iran. My personal view, we, don't, we simply don't have enough time, there's so many, but the, is that we should start thinking about a policy of containment as we did, nuclear containment as we did with the Soviet Union. You know, that succeeded. That succeeded. We had the 1963 Cuba Missile Crisis, but overall there was not a nuclear exchange between the United States and the Soviet Union for all the years in the Cold War. Now, it's an entirely different historical situation between the United States and Iran. If Iran gets one or two or three or four nuclear weapons, it is no match for the arsenals of Israel. Pakistan has much more. China, of course, is a major nuclear power, as is uh, Great Britain and, uh, and, and, and the other powers, and nuclear powers. But the United States... And others could simply make it known to Iran that if you ever, ever get to the point where you are contemplating using a nuclear weapon, you are dust. The United States nuclear arsenal can be recalibrated and retargeted in 20 minutes. Containment works. The Ayatollahs in Tehran are capable of sending people out to do acts of terrorism against enemies or their, whoever they consider to be rivals and support terrorist groups and send Iranians to the battlefront, young boys, you know, to sacrifice their lives in the Iran-Iraq war. But they themselves are not suicidal. Their interest is to stay in power and consolidate their power. So it's not like you're dealing with a group of madmen in Tehran. They're not madmen. They're smart as a fox and as calculating as a fox. No one talks about containment. You don't see it in the newspapers. They're beginning to get hints of it. But that's something that I think we should think about. Let me quickly go to Afghanistan and Pakistan. The goal of American policy and the president's strategy is to disrupt, dismantle, and defeat the Taliban and al-Qaeda. That is the right policy. Why are we in Afghanistan? Because they came to us on 9-11. They attacked us. And as I said, the war on Afghanistan and toppling the Taliban which gave safe haven to Osama bin Laden and his group, was a right war. In my eyes, a just war. But what did we do? We succeeded. And instead of sustaining that policy and keeping Afghanistan free of Taliban, major Taliban influence, we started another war in Iraq. 
and diverted our attention and our resources and, by the way, took our eyes off of Afghanistan. And lo and behold, to find out in the last several years that the Taliban is back. And now we've committed American troops and treasure to Afghanistan. We made the same mistake <laughs> after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. We supported, this is the height of the Cold War, 1979. I was political counsel in Moscow at the time. I had the distinct privilege of going with our ambassador to get the news from the Soviet foreign minister. They wanted our president, Jimmy Carter, to be the first to know that the Soviet Union was extending humanitarian, Afga uh, humanitarian assistance to the Afghan people. And the ambassador looked at the minister, he said, he turned to me and he said, Ed, is the translation correct? I said, unfortunately it is, Mr. Ambassador. And he said, is this what you want, to you want me to tell my president? We know what you are doing. You're invading. Our intelligence is showing us what you're doing. You're making a grave mistake. And he got up in a real Yankee fashion and stomped out of the room. I stomped out of the room trying to replicate his Yankee gesture, but forgot the damn memorandum that they handed us. So I had to rush back in the room. And I... <laughs> And, and looking as mad as I could, you know, snap it up from the Soviet minister's desk and rushed out again, following my ambassador. Uh, but w so we supported the Mujahideen to put the heat on the Soviet military in Afghanistan, and we did it very effectively with the Saudis and others. We succeeded. And then we walked away. In the meantime, we subled and subcontracted our policy out to the Pakistani intelligence services and to the Saudis. And lo and behold, the rise of the madrasas in Pakistan, the rise of Islamic radical groups, the return of the Taliban to Afghanistan, ultimately. I don't know how many lessons we have to learn, but you know, as Americans, we don't pay enough attention to history. We simply are too fixated on current events because everything has to be new and fresh, which was one of the great things about America's innovation and everything. But you know, going forward, we have to understand the past in order to understand the future much better. So now we have a policy in Afghanistan that, as you've seen in the newspapers recently, is quite, uh, it's being debated whether this is the right war for the United States and if we're going to be able to extricate ourselves with any real positive results. Uh, Afghanistan is a very complex country. Nobody, nobody in history, including beginning with Alexander the Great, has been able to govern effectively Afghanistan. Nobody. Someone came up with the great word, you know, this goes beyond warlords and tribalism. Someone came up with the word that in Afghanistan you're dealing with valleyism. Each valley you go into has a different political cultural <laughs> system. We do not have the capacity, I believe, for nation building in Afghanistan. We don't have 
the cultural understanding of that country, the linguistic skills to communicate with the different factions of that country, nor the resources for nation building. And the challenges are great. When I headed this commission for Colin Powell on public diplomacy, we published a report in 2003, Changing Minds, Winning Hearts. Uh, It was a congressionally mandated uh, advisory group. Uh, Congress wanted to know, why did the Arabs hate us? Form a commission, find out. The Secretary Powell called me. I said, oh, my God. He said, I said, yes, sir, I'll do it. And we got a bipartisan committee. We went over. And uh, one of the things we looked at is what skills do we have in a national security establishment to deal with the cultural challenges we're facing in the broader Muslim world? And so one of the things is linguistic skills. I've studied languages in the Foreign Service and the State Department. I have a pretty good idea of what it is. But I asked questions. How many linguists do we have who understand and speak professionally? Professionally. Not social chit-chat. Arabic. Farsi. Urdu. Pashtu. Turkish. Bahasa Indonesian. How many? So we got the statistics, and they weren't very high. So we made a major recommendation that we need to recruit and develop and train hundreds of truly professionally capable Foreign Service, intelligence, USAID officers. And I asked an Arabic alone, give me the statistics. The first thing that came back was 279 professionally speaking Arabic. Well, that's a pretty nice number, but I wonder how true it is. I said, how many of these are truly professional? speaking at the professional three or four level. Well, then they came back and they said, about 80. And then I went back, I said, all right, ask this question. How many Foreign Service officers could we put on Al Jazeera tonight after some outrageous accusation against American policy is made on Al Jazeera and the president or the secretary of state or an ambassador wants an American voice on Al Jazeera, which is 35 million households. I go on Al Jazeera when I'm ever asked because it's so vast, the audience, and important. Five. It was actually four, but before Congress, I wanted to be dramatic, so I said five. (laughs) Because it's pretty hard to do this, so I said five. That's disgraceful. Now, in all fairness, the State Department and the other, they're doing, they're really focusing on this. Resources are going into language training, both on the Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton. I mean, things are being done. This is not a static situation. But if we have the pretension to go into these, this part of the world and try to make a difference, we really have to have the human resources, not just the money and the military. It falls on the back of our military. They're not trained for this. But our military is carrying the burden of nation building. And it should really be the civilian side of the house in Iraq and Afghanistan, for example. So we don't have the necessary resources to do serious nation building. So I don't know what is going to happen in Afghanistan, but I think my own view is that we should continue to keep our focus on disrupting, dismantling, and defeating the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. 
or if you will, the bad Taliban, because the Taliban is different. They're a different Taliban. Stabilizing as much as we can the central government in Kabul, making it sure it gets into a position where it can extend the basic resources and services of government to the Afghan people, maybe use our military forces to consolidate the region around Kabul to secure the central government, help build roads where we can. General Eikenberry, who is the commanding general in Afghanistan, now is our ambassador in Kabul, he came to the bakers who made a speech. He said, where the roads end, the Taliban begins, which means where the government cannot provide medical clinics, schools, uh, basic services, water, sanitation, that's when the Taliban comes in. And go back to my original statistics about the economic and social and education deficits in this part of the world. So we can do that on a more selective basis and then conduct a very robust counterterrorism, special forces operations against the hardcore terrorist groups. That, in my humble opinion, would be a better approach than trying to take on nation building in the country as a whole. The other thing, and the last thing I'll say, and I'll open it up to questions. Uh, remember what I talked about connecting the dots? In my view, there cannot be a viable and comprehensive policy toward Afghanistan if it's only focused on Afghanistan and Pakistan. Other than Al-Qaeda and the terrorists on the border areas of Afghanistan and in Afghanistan, our real national security interests is making sure that pa Pakistan doesn't implode. It is a major state in the region. It's a nuclear weapons state. It has many problems. But if Pakistan goes extremist, then we may see another war on the subcontinent. So my humble suggestion, which I made to the administration, is that instead of looking at Afghanistan and the PAC, AFPAC, PACAF, you've seen that AFPAC approach, the acronym, is to expand it so American diplomacy and international diplomacy will focus much more on this trilogy of Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India and the unresolved Kashmir crisis that has brought Pakistan and India to war before. Kashmir is a mostly Muslim-populated entity that the Pakistanis feel should be part of Pakistan and the Indians feel should be part of India. But that conflict resolution should be a focus of our diplomacy and our policy. And the basic reality is that Pakistan considers India to be its major enemy and a threat to its existence. And that is one of the reasons why it's hedging its bets in Afghanistan, because it fears that India can outflank Pakistan in Afghanistan by supporting various groups and tribes, which India does. And until we get to the point where Pakistan feels more secure about India and will then commit its forces and its efforts wholeheartedly 
to securing and getting rid of the radical and terrorist groups in Afghanistan, I think will we have a chance for a realistic and comprehensive policy. So you can see that, and I've just done this with a very broad brush, but you can see the complexity of this region. That's one of the reasons when I was a young diplomat I chose to specialize in this region because it's called the Full Employment Opportunity Act <laughs> for an American diplomat. <laughs> the crises will always be there. But uh, I hope that I've been able to give you an understanding of the basic forces of play. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ed. We have a few minutes for questions, and we'll begin back here. And we're recording, so uh, if you would please speak into the mic. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm Jewish. I've always believed in the two-state solution, land for peace. I don't see that Netanyahu really wants peace at all. He's continuing the, the settlements. He doesn't seem to want to compromise, and I'm not feeling that hopeful. Well, there's strong reason for you not to feel hopeful, but uh, I wouldn't give up on hope. But I just hope that our hope is intelligent. <laughs> and uh, as I said, uh, this exercise, admittedly this academic exercise we went through at the Baker Institute on an Israeli-Palestinian territorial agreement, it shows to you that a compromise can be reached if, and this is a big if, that, that's addressing your question, if the political will is there in the parties. I think that given Bibi Netanyahu's very narrow uh, coalition. Uh, I don't think that he could make any major decisions uh, that would result in an Israeli-Palestinian peace unless he broadened his coalition internally and, for example, brought in Kadima. He's got Ehud Barak, the Minister of Defense, who's the head of the Labor Party. Uh, Ehud Barak has been very active in Israeli-Syrian peace, Israeli-Palestinian peace. I think uh, Zippy Livni, the head of Kadima, if she was brought into that coalition, and Bibi had both the Labor Party and Kadima, I think then there would be a truly an enhanced chance for him to be able as prime minister to make the hard decisions. But that's my view. Unless there's a broadening within of the political coalition within Israel, I don't think that we can get to the end game. But having said that, a lot can be done between now and that point where he can broaden his coalition to keep the talks going. And God willing, George Mitchell will be able to uh, get direct talks going soon uh, and keep the talks going. So don't give up hope completely. You're, you're very right to be skeptical. Uh, the betting is on the skeptics in the Middle East. But what I'm saying is that it truly can be done but the political will factor is, is essential, and we can influence that. Thank you for a very informative and quite thought-provoking talk. You have not, however, mentioned in your discussions the uh, conflict between the Shia and the Sunnis. And those appear to be quite broad, both in Afghanistan, Iran, and Iraq. Would you comment on that? Surely. Well, well as, as you well know, that's quite historic. It goes back to the origins of Islam 
and the succession to the Prophet Muhammad, the Khulafa. And the big distinction that with the death of Ali, uh, the Shiite movement, Shiite, actually Shiite means the party of Ali, Shiite Ali. And therefore, uh, that, that's a historic uh, breach in Islam that dates back to the 7th, 8th centuries. And so therefore, that difference and distinction exists. But the Shiites are mostly in Iran, Iraq, Bahrain, southern Lebanon, and elsewhere, and in Saudi Arabia, northeast there. They represent about 15% of the uh, Muslim world. The Sunni represent 85%. So most of the Muslim world is Sunni. Now, those divisions are, are real. They're very deep. But they are not necessarily conflict-prone. In other words, it's not a division that necessarily has to lead to warfare between Sunnis and Shias. I don't see that. Although we in the Christian world have had our religious wars, and Protestants and Catholics and various sects within Christianity, uh, I don't necessarily see the outcome being a warfare. Will there be coalitions of Sunnis that will try to hem in Iran? Absolutely. We see that now. The Sunni Gulf is very, very apprehensive of Iran's nuclear ambitions. And therefore, they will try to do everything to stem that regime's policies. But it doesn't necessarily translate into a conflict between a Shiite Muslim and a Sunni Muslim. To this, at this point, you know, when I was a young diplomat in in Lebanon, the uh, I was the first American diplomat to meet with the Imam Musa Sadr, who was a very charismatic Shiite leader at that time, just beginning to emerge, and he represented the the very moderate face of of Shiism. He was ecumenical in his approach, uh, an advocate of uh, interfaith dialogue with uh, uh, Muslims, Christians, and Jews. Uh, but he was the voice of the oppressed Shiite people who were living in poverty in southern Lebanon. That movement that he started morphed in Lebanon in 1982 when the Israelis invaded southern Lebanon and radicalized the Shiites, and Hezbollah was born. So while Hezbollah is a successor of what he started, it shows you how these movements can be radicalized. But let me say this, in terms of Hezbollah and the Shiites there, that, in, in terms of that conflict, that's mostly territorial. If we can get an Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement and peace between Syria and Israel and Lebanon, Hezbollah will become a political organization. It'll no longer be, it, it would have no reason to maintain a militant, violent uh, agenda. Can we take one more? Jules, we'll... Hi, thank you for your discussion today. I'm a GSM class of 2008. Um, my question touches on education, and you spoke about in all your segments education. And uh, looking at what comes out, you see quite a variance in equity. So in Israel, 
quite a bit of intellectual property, patents that come out of Tel Aviv. Um, you see great institutions in Egypt, and we have you know traditions in Iran. So, why? What is the uh, a? What is the um, secret weapon, or what is you know what has Israel got that that the other countries can try to emulate? And then the other question is, how do you see that working in the education field? Yes, right. higher education in particular. Higher education. Yes, okay. sir. Well, what they're experimenting with is uh, uh, the, the, the institutions you mentioned, AUC and AUB and Robert College in Istanbul, are great institutions. Uh, AUB is create, is, has formed a large number of the leaders of the Arab world, for good and bad. Mostly 98% good leaders, but also, in our view, also some very radical leaders. But uh, so does the American educational system. <laughs> but these are wonderful examples of the American higher education model working in the Middle East. They cannot necessarily be replicated, but they should be expanded. And where they can be replicated, they should be. But what's happening now is that in Qatar, for example, Sheikh Moza has established Education City. And what she's done is bring in uh, the uh, uh, Texas A&M Petroleum Engineering, Georgetown University International Affairs, Weill Cornell Medical School in major medical uh, research, uh, and uh, Imperial College of London. And they grant degrees that are equivalent to degrees granted in the home countries of these universities. So they're building up a uh, taking the best of, of some Western higher education facilities in the Arab world, and their and their ambition is that this be you know Qatar's population is so small, but that that students from all over the Arab world and South Asia come to these institutions. So they're pouring a great deal of effort and money into these institutions. The UAE is doing a similar thing, as I mentioned, Saudi Arabia, King Abdullah has opened up the. Yeah, just recently established the uh, King Abdullah uh, Science and Technology University. By the way, the only campus in Saudi Arabia that's, uh, that has women on it, which is quite a remarkable uh, move in the kingdom. And he's taken some political heat on that, but he's persisted with that to his credit. So that's one model. Uh, but what is important is also the, the K through 12 to really get qualified students who could take advantage of these institutions of higher learning. And that is a challenge. And then changing the cultural mindset in some of these countries that, especially those, the, the cursed blessing of oil, who feel that they really don't have to work too hard because there'll be financial resources for their family and their future. Uh, that mindset has to be changed. And, an, and, and that cultural mindset has to be changed. That they have to really work and work hard to give back to their society and, and study subjects that can give back to their society, uh, be it engineering, uh, physical sciences, social sciences, uh, and not just religious studies. 
I have nothing against religious studies, but it cannot be the predominant uh, major. So the challenges are, 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 are vast, but they're really beginning to address uh, the problem. But the system is broken. The education system is broken, and they have a lot of work to do. Thank you. Ed, thank you for those uh, fascinating remarks. Uh, The Graduate School of Management is increasingly committed to treating global issues affecting both business and policymaking, so we really appreciate your uh, remarks today. And I I listed many of your achievements earlier when I introduced you, but one that I did not mention is the profound gratitude that the American people have and all of us here for all of the work that you've been doing in your career to bring about peace around the world. So thank Thank you you. for that. Um, On behalf of the Institute for Governmental Affairs and the Graduate School of Management, we have a small token of our appreciation uh, that's fairly easy to carry in your travels, not a heavy one. (laughs) So uh, again, let's uh, thank Ed for his remarks today. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.